Aurangzeb's goals for the empire were completely consistent with his own ardent piety as a follower of the Hanaf school. In his later years, Aurangzeb exceeded the bounds of normal devotion. Even as emperor, he devoted seven years to memorizing the entire Quran. An initial embarrassment, however, was his need to legitimate Shah Jahan's forced deposition and imprisonment. Rebellion against his father placed Aurangzeb in the awkward position of violating both the Sharia and strongly held norms of filial piety for Muslims. In 1659, the emperor sent a richly laden mission to Sharif Zaid, ruler of the holy cities in the Hejaz, to obtain formal recognition. Rebuffed on this occasion, a second mission returned with holy relics sent to celebrate the emperor's ascent to the Timurid throne. Thereafter, Aurangzeb was a generous patron of the holy places. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we are continuing our discussion of the Mughal Empire. This is Episode 9-10, Aurangzeb's Enemies. Let's begin with a quick recap of the previous episode. The EIC, the East India Company, continues to grow in India, adding Bombay to their territory in 1665. Bombay would go on to become the EIC's most important Indian naval base. Emperor Aurangzeb deals with a relatively minor revolt involving the Aham people of Bengal. But more devastating was the continued Maratha problem in the Deccan. The Maratha leader, Shivaji, attacks both Mughal and Bijapur holdings in the Deccan. The Mughals eventually defeat him, but once again, Aurangzeb fails to deal with Shivaji decisively. Shivaji switches allegiances frequently, sometimes siding with the Mughals, sometimes with the Deccan Sultanates, but always on his own side. His true goal, Shivaji's true goal, is to remove Muslim authority in the Deccan. In January 1666, deposed Emperor Shah Jahan, Aurangzeb's father, dies after eight years under house arrest. And now, let's begin today's episode. Koshul Khan Katak and the Afghan Revolt Throughout much of the 1660s, the Patan tribes had been causing trouble. These Patan tribes lived near Peshawar, which is in modern-day Pakistan, and had even raided some of the neighborhoods in Peshawar. Patan is... For lack of a better phrase, it's really another name for Pashtun, but the Mughals called all of them Afghans. In 1667, the Yusufzai tribe, that's one of these Pashtun or Patan tribes, the Yusufzai tribe invaded the Hazara district in northeast Peshawar. Emperor Aurangzeb ordered commanders from Atak and Kabul to deal with the Yusufzais and also appointed Muhammad Amin, that's the son of Mir Jumla, as the campaign's leader. The Mughals defeated the Yusufzais in 1667, but this peace, this victory was short-lived because soon after that, in 1671, the Afridi tribe, under their leader Akmal Khan, declared war on the Mughals. We're going to get to them in just a moment, but let's talk a little bit about Kushal Khan Katak. 
Kushul Khan Katak was a Pashtun poet and tribal leader who was once under the service of Shah Jahan, Emperor Shah Jahan. But later on, he was imprisoned by Aurangzeb when Aurangzeb came to power. And I couldn't really figure out why he was imprisoned, but for whatever reason, Aurangzeb decided to throw him into prison. He was eventually released in 1668, but by then the damage had been done. Kushul Khan Katak felt bitter about being imprisoned and refused all Mughal offers to serve under the imperial authority again and to try to mend the relationship. Kushul Khan Katak joined the rebellion alongside Akmal Khan and the Afridis that we mentioned just a few minutes ago to fight against the Mughals. Eventually, this rebellion got very intense and Aurangzeb decided to take charge of the campaign himself. This is going to be another recurring theme with Aurangzeb. He tends to like taking over campaigns himself and being directly involved in them. And uh, this may actually come to the detriment of the Mughal Empire as a whole. So Aurangzeb takes charge of the campaign himself. So now this is in the Pakistan slash Afghanistan region of the empire. And this kept him preoccupied while the Marathas were wreaking havoc in the Deccan. We discussed this in the previous episode. We mentioned how uh, Shivaji was running rambunctious throughout the Deccan. But because Aurangzeb was too busy fighting the Afghans, he couldn't really deal with the, with the Marathas in the Deccan. Well, this is his fight against the Afghans that we mentioned. So Aurangzeb tried to use diplomacy and bribery to reduce the numbers of Afghans fighting against him. He eventually appointed his son, Prince Akbar, and another general named Amir Khan to finish off the remaining Afghan holdouts after Aurangzeb had whittled down their numbers to a, a reasonable number. So with the revolt, with the Afghan revolt taken care of, Aurangzeb appointed Amir Khan as the governor of Kabul, and Amir Khan used his diplomatic skills to bring peace to Afghanistan. And by 1675, the situation was, was under control enough for Aurangzeb to return home. Kushul Khan Katak, however, that is the Afghan poet, he wasn't ready for peace. He continued to fight the Mughals. This guy really held a grudge. He continued to fight the Mughals all the way up until he died in 1689 at the ripe old age of, get this, 76 years. Even today, Kushul Khan is highly regarded in the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my best to say this, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province of Pakistan. I think it's KPK now. The uh, Northwest Territories of Pakistan. He is still highly regarded in this part of Pakistan even today. The Jats and Satnamis Rebellions The Jats are a rural ethnic group that is found in northern India and Pakistan. Now, in Pakistan, the Jats are mostly Muslim, whereas in India, they are divided between both the Sikhs and the Hindus. Those Jats who are Sikh are mostly found in Punjab. During the reigns of Emperor Akbar and Emperor Jahangir, the Jats of Mathura enjoyed several privileges. Mathura is a city in western Uttar Pradesh, about 25 miles northwest of Agra. However, under Shah Jahan, these privileges began to become decreased and the Jats started to grow more restless and they eventually wound up supporting Dada Shiko during the fratricidal civil war against Aurangzeb. In 1669, the Jats were led by a man named Gokul Singh. Gokul Singh led them in a revolution against the Mughals, and the Jats eventually wound up desecrating a masjid. 
The revolt was suppressed and Gokul Singh, their leader, was captured and publicly executed by having his his arms and legs individually chopped off. So in my mind, I don't know how this actually happened, but in my mind, they stretched this guy out and went from limb to limb, chopping off his, his arms and legs until he eventually bled out. Things were rough back then. Things were pretty rough. However, in 1681, the Jats rebelled again, this time under a man named Raja Ram of Sinsini. Sinsini is a village in Rajasthan. The, the Jats under Raja Ram, they took advantage of Aurangzeb's preoccupation in the Deccan, that is his current fight against Shivaji and the Marathas in the Deccan. These Jats in 1681, they got to the point where they were able to attack and desecrate Akbar's tomb. They burned his bones. They even took the silver doors from the Taj Mahal. Eventually, however, the imperial forces defeated the Jats yet again, and Rajaram, their leader, was executed in 1688. Now on to the Satnamis. The Satnamis were formed in 1657 as a monotheistic sect similar to the Sikhs. They were mostly peasants in the Punjab, mostly from lower Hindu castes, and they believed in one true god whose name was Ram. However, they rejected rituals and they focused mostly on caring for people. That's their form of worship, I suppose. In 1672, a Satnami youth, a young boy from this group, got into a fight with a group of Mughal nobles and he was eventually killed by one of the Mughal soldiers. Well, the Satnamis retaliated and this eventually led to a rebellion of the Satnamis. The rebellion soon grew out of hand and the Satnamis defeated the imperial troops in the region and even marched towards Delhi. But they were ultimately defeated by the Mughals in 1672 and the Mughal commander that defeated them, his name was Radandaz Khan, was given the honorific of Shujat Khan, which means brave. The Rajput Revolt the Rator Rajputs are a prominent clan within the larger Rajput community of India. As we mentioned in the previous season and in previous episodes, but just to remind you, the Rajputs were a predominantly warrior caste and they have historically dominated much of the subcontinent of India. The Rajputs have historically been known for their martial skills, their chivalry, and their strong sense of honor and loyalty. The Rators, a clan within the Rajputs, were specifically associated with the region of Marwar, which is now known as Jodhpur, which is located in the modern state of Rajasthan in India. The Rator dynasty was founded by Rao Chunda in the 6th century. It gained prominence under the rule of Rao Joda in the 15th century, and he established the city of Jodhpur in the capital of the Marwar region and Rao Joda's descendants are known as the Rator Rajputs. These Rator Rajputs ruled over the princely state of Marwar all the way up until India gained independence in 1947. The Rator Rajputs were amongst the most respected and powerful Rajput clans in Rajasthan, and they have historically played a significant role in regional politics and military affairs even up until today. The Rators were also known for their bravery in battles, for their loyalty, and they had a, a complex system of honor and followed a very strict code of conduct known as Rajputana Dharma. 
In this code of honor, this system of honor and code of conduct emphasized courage, hospitality, and sincerity. Now, the Rajputs had been an ongoing problem for the Muslim rulers of India. Even before the Mughals, the Rajputs were a problem for the sultans of Delhi. When Babur first came to India, if you go and listen to the previous season, you will learn that he had to fight against them when he first arrived. His grandson, that is Babur's grandson, Emperor Akbar, managed to win over the Rajputs partially through violence, through warfare, but also through his policies of appeasement and marriage. Akbar married several Rajput princesses in order to gain the Rajput support. We discussed all this in the previous season. Go back and listen to it if you need some more clarification. I strongly encourage it. So for much of this period, the relationship between the Mughals and the Rajputs was pretty good. It was fairly decent. But things began to sour. The relationship between them began to go bad during the fratricidal war. That is the war between Aurangzeb and Dadashiko and the rest of his brothers. As you may remember, we discussed this in the previous episode, Jaswan Singh, who was the Rana of Mewar, he kept switching sides between Dadashiko and Aurangzeb. We mentioned that before. He would go from one to the other to one to the other, but he was mostly for Dadashiko. But when Dadashiko needed him the most, he didn't give him help. Jaswan Singh proved to be very untrustworthy and even attempted to incite Aurangzeb's son, Muazzam, to revolt against Aurangzeb. Let me read you this short excerpt about the relationship between Emperor Aurangzeb and the Rajputs. The most sensitive test for the new militant orthodoxy lay in the emperor's relationship with his Rajput nobles. On the surface, the Rajputs had no immediate grounds for complaint. They still formed an influential group within the imperial nobility. Indeed, the highest-ranked noble in the empire was Mirza Raja Jai Singh Kachwaha of Jaipur, 7,000 Zat, 7,000 Subar, who had been Aurangzeb's most faithful supporter in the War of Succession. In 1665, Jai Singh became viceroy of the Deccan provinces, a position usually held by an adult Timurid prince. After 1679, all Rajputs in imperial service were exempt from payment of the jizya, although their subjects at home were not. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire Well, Jaswan Singh died in 1679 without leaving any heirs. Jaswan Singh, that's the Rana of Mawar, the guy who sw- kept switching sides between Dada and Aurangzeb. All right, so he died in 1679 with no heirs, and at the time, he was within the Mughal fold. He had stuck with Aurangzeb after he had betrayed Dadashiko. At the time, he commanded a Mughal outpost at Jamrud near the Khyber Pass, which is now in present-day Pakistan. But with his death, with Jaswan Singh's death, came a succession crisis. One of his wives gave birth to a son in Lahore. So we're talking about Jaswan Singh and his Rajputs mostly in Lahore. Aurangzeb, for whatever reason, had his doubts about the legitimacy of this child and his claim to the throne of Mawar. So instead, he appointed a man named Indar Singh, who was a grandnephew of Jaswan Singh, to be the new Rana of Marwar. 
Then he had the infant, that is, this disputed child of Jaswan Singh. He had the baby brought to the Mughal court in Delhi with a promise to educate the child and give him many honors later on in his life. The baby's mother, however, was afraid that her child would be raised as a Muslim, which most likely would have happened, and so she fled Delhi with the baby. She was assisted, she didn't do this by herself, she was assisted by a man named Durga Das and his Rator Rajput soldiers. Durga Das was the Rator Rajput general in Marwar. So he was one of the major generals for the Rajputs in Marwar. Upon arriving in Marwar, once they got the infant, the baby back to Marwar, the baby was declared the new Rana of Marwar. So with this now, they had gone against Aurangzeb's declaration because Aurangzeb had stated that this child was not legitimate, we'll raise him to be a good person and to be a Muslim most likely and we'll give him honors, but we don't think he is really Jaswan Singh's heir. This guy, however, we know that he's a grandnephew that is Indar Singh. We know he's a grandnephew of Jaswan Singh, so he's going, he's going to be your new leader. That's the position that Aurangzeb took. The Rator Rajputs was like, no, we're going to choose our own leader. We believe this child is a true leader. And almost certainly Endar Singh was someone that the Mughals preferred, not just because they believed he was legitimate, but perhaps he also had, well, let's just say he was someone the Mughals knew they could trust and perhaps even control. Never underestimate the influence of politics in these things. So with this, the Rajputs of Mobar had revolted against the Mughals, and now this led to a serious situation for Aurangzeb. So Aurangzeb, once again, decided to personally direct the military actions, the military operations against the Rajputs of Mobar himself. But his son, Prince Akbar, actually led the imperial forces into battle. Remember that name, Prince Akbar. He's going to come up later on in the episode. Anyway, his son, Prince Akbar, led the imperial forces into battle, and the Mughals quickly overran Marwar and essentially annexed it and made it part of their territory. But this caused a new problem for the Mughals. After they annexed Marwar, the neighboring Rajput kingdom of Mewar decided to join the cause in the fight against the Mughals. One thing about Mewar, the neighboring Rajput kingdom, the baby's mother that had been abducted out of Delhi and taken back to Marwar, that child's mother was actually a princess from Mewar. So now Aurangzeb found himself at war with two separate Rajput kingdoms, the Marwar kingdom and the Mewar kingdom. In 1681, Kumar Bimsingh, who was the son of the Rana of Udaipur, led an invasion into Gujarat. Udaipur was initially discussed in episode 8-15, that's from the previous season. We mentioned how this city was founded by Uday Singh, who was a Rajput leader who had fought against the Mughals during the reign of Emperor Akbar. Anyway, Kumar Bim Singh's forces plundered the towns of Idar and its suburbs and burned about 300 mosques in the region. Meanwhile, another Rajput commander named Diyal Singh also looted Malwa, and he also went about destroying mosques, burning Qur'ans, and shaving the heads of Muslim judges just as a way of humiliating the Muslims in the region. So with Prince Akbar, that is Aurangzeb's son, Prince Akbar, with Prince Akbar losing control of the region, Aurangzeb replaced him with another one of his sons, Prince Azam. 
Prince Azam was brought in from Bengal, and together with Prince Muazzam and the governor of Gujarat, Prince Azam launched a three-pronged attack on the Rajputs. Meanwhile, the Rajputs approached the disgraced Prince Akbar, the one who couldn't control things in the Rajput region and was replaced with uh, Prince Azam. They approached Prince Akbar and offered to give him their support if he went and overthrew Aurangzeb. They blamed his father Aurangzeb for causing all of these problem, problems in India, and they felt it was time for someone new to lead the Mughal Empire. Prince Akbar foolishly accepted their offer. He released a statement, Prince Akbar that is, he released a statement that effectively removed his father as emperor, I guess, and claimed the emperorship or the, claimed the throne for himself, and he even found a few foolish Islamic scholars to support his claim. So with this new support, Prince Akbar began to march on his father's camp at Ajmer, which is located in the center of the state of Rajasthan. And truth be told, Prince Akbar actually had a good chance at victory. As we mentioned in previous episode, each Mughal prince had their own personal army. It was never as large as the imperial army, but it was still a good-sized army. So Prince Akbar still had a large number of forces under his own command. In addition to that, the Rajputs who had convinced him to rebel against his father had promised to supplement him with an additional 30,000 troops. And Aurangzeb himself, he only had 10,000 troops stationed at his camp in Ajmer. However, Aurangzeb had the experience. He was an old warrior. He had been fighting since he was a teenager, and this gave him the edge. He used his spies and placed them within Prince Akbar's camp and, and had them delay Prince Akbar's progress. They bribed Prince Akbar's astrologers to advise him to take a slow pace. Kind of deceptive there. But anyway, this gave uh, Aurangzeb time to bring in reinforcements. Eventually, Prince Muazzam arrived in Ajmer with his troops, and in fact, Aurangzeb's spies were able to win over some of Prince Akbar's commanders and had them defect and go over to the emperor. In January 1681, the two armies faced off at Diorai. This was the same place that Aurangzeb had previously defeated Dadashiko. And once again, Aurangzeb displayed his, his spy mastery, his excellence at espionage, and used these skills to divide his enemies. He sent a letter to Prince Akbar congratulating him for luring the Rajputs out of the hills so he could slaughter them on the battlefield. And of course, this letter was conveniently intercepted by the Rajputs. Of course, this letter was a fake. There was no agreement between Aurangzeb and Prince Akbar. This was all meant to break the alliances between the Rajput and his son. Anyway, another letter was sent to Prince Akbar's most loyal supporter, a man named Taha Vorda Khan. This letter was not a lie. <laughs> this was Aurangzeb threatening Taha Vorda Khan that he would sell his wives and sons into slavery if he did not defect from Prince Akbar and get back to the imperial side. Well, the Rajputs, they believed the fake letter, and in the middle of the night, they got up and left and defected from Prince Akbar, but not before they ransacked his camp. Tahavur Khan also snuck away in the middle of the night and took much of the rest of the prince's army along with him. 
And so Prince Akbar woke up the next morning and found himself almost completely alone in the middle of the battlefield. He somehow managed to flee and got away just in time. He fled first to Gujarat and then to the Deccan, where he was given refuge by none other than Sambhaji. Sambhaji was the son of Shivaji, who was the former Maratha commander, but now Sambhaji is the current Maratha commander and ruler. Eventually, Prince Akbar would make his way to Persia, where he would die in 1704, but that doesn't happen just yet. The Rajput-Mughal conflict finally came to an end two months later in March 1681 with the Treaty of Udaipur. According to this treaty, Jai Singh was recognized as the Rana of Udaipur and Mawar. However, he had to cede, he had to give up some of his territory to the Mughals. Later on, this was returned to the Rajputs, but for now, this was a, a win for the Mughals. Jai Singh also had to pay an indemnity, that is a fee, a punishment, reparations of 300,000 rupees, and the fort of Chittor could not be rebuilt. The Rana also agreed not to give shelter to the Rator Rajputs. And so, with the Rajputs sort of taken care of, Aurangzeb decided to switch his focus to the Deccan where he could deal with his son, that is Prince Akbar, and the Marathas. This war between the Rajputs and the Mughals began in 1679 and finally ended with the Treaty of Udaipur in 1681. But many of the Rajputs continued to wage a guerrilla war against the Mughals from the Aravali Hills, and these are a series of hills running northeast through Rajasthan. Another Deccan quagmire. So once again, we find ourselves back in the Deccan. Now, the Deccan Sultanates, during the days of the Delhi Sultanate, that is before the, the establishment of the Mughal Empire with Babur's invasion of India, during the days of the, De of the Delhi Sultanate, the Deccan region was part of the great Bahmani Kingdom or the Bahmani Sultanate. However, after the fall of the Bahmani Sultanate, it split up into five more sultanates, that is the Bidar, Ahmadagar, Berar, Bijapur, and Golconda. And we, I'm pretty sure we discussed this back during the um, Malik Ambar series. I think we discussed it back then. But anyway, refresh is not a problem. So Rongzeb had been wanting to conquer the Deccan ever since he was a, a young prince. He wanted the Deccan. He campaigned extensively in the Deccan during the reign of his father, Shah Jahan. He wound up capturing Bedar, Ahmadnagar, and Barad. And we covered all of this in previous episodes. He had also fought against Bijapur and Golconda and nearly forced them to capitulate. But his brother, the great hater-in-chief, Dadashiko, who didn't want to see Aurangzeb get any stronger, convinced their father, Emperor Shah Jahan, to order Aurangzeb to back down right when he was close to taking both of them. On two different occasions, by the way. Again, we discussed this in the earlier episodes. But now, Aurangzeb was sitting on the throne in Delhi. He was the emperor, and there was nobody to tell him to back down this time. And he wanted to complete the conquest of Bijapur and Golconda and bring the Deccan fully under Mughal authority. However, his initial advances into the Deccan faced repeated failures. He has sent his sons Muazzam and Azam to lead some campaigns into the Deccan, but they never quite worked out. 
Wazam faced the Marathas and he managed to penetrate deep into Maratha territory, but he was eventually defeated and driven out of the region. Prince Azam managed to capture the city of Sholapur, but could not take Bijapur. In 1685, Aurangzeb sent his other son, Prince Muazzam, to conquer Bijapur. But instead of outright conquering Bijapur, Prince Muazzam tried to strike a deal with the Sultan of Bijapur. And in this deal, Bijapur had to agree to, to provide passage for Mughal troops through their territory. They had to cut all ties to the Marathas, and they also had to provide troops to the Mughals in their fight against the Marathas. Well, the Sultan of Bijapur refused to accept these demands and instead formed an alliance with Golconda and the Marathas. So now Prince Muazzam, instead of just fighting against Bijapur, he was now fighting against Bijapur, Golconda, and the Marathas. So this time, Aurangzeb decided to once again personally lead the campaign to crush this new Deccan alliance. Aurangzeb was a very hands-on kind of emperor when it came to fighting. He believed that if he could get this one victory, if he could destroy and crush this alliance, it would finally complete his dream of conquering the Deccan. And it would also allow him to punish his rebellious son, Prince Akbar, who was staying with the Marathas in the Deccan. He did not escape or flee to Persia until some years later. But for right now, he is in the Deccan and Emperor Aurangzeb wants to get his hands on him. We've seen in the past how Rongzeb deals with his rebellious sons. Don't forget Muhammad Sultan from, I believe, uh, two episodes ago. So the siege of Bijapur began in April 1686 and lasted for about five months. During this period, the Mughal soldiers, the troops, were mostly working on filling the moat around the city. Rongzeb's forces finally filled the moat, crossed over, and forced their way into the city in September 1686. And from there, Arongza was able to annex the Bijapur Sultanate. And now, all that's left of the independent Deccan Sultanate was the Sultanate of Golconda. Six weeks after annexing Bijapur, in September 1687, Emperor Arongzeb laid siege to Golconda. The city of Hyderabad, which was right next to Golconda, was known for its decadence. Reportedly, Hyderabad had 20,000 prostitutes, and they would sing and dance for the Sultan of Golconda every Friday. Why he would need 20,000 prostitutes is beyond me, and why he would choose Friday of all days to do this is also beyond me, but that's neither here nor there. With this sort of immorality going on and knowing how strict and pious Emperor Aurangzeb was, obviously he wanted to get rid of this stuff going on. But the Sultan of Golconda, he hunkered down inside the fort of Golconda. This is actually the same fort that Aurangzeb's son, Muhammad Sultan, had besieged 30 years earlier. Go back to episode 9-7 to hear about that one. Aurangzeb laid siege for eight months until finally Golconda fell not to military tactics, but to bribery. They bribed somebody who let them in, and it was all over. With that, the Mughals finally annexed the Sultanate of Golconda, and the Deccan Sultanates were gone. They were now part of the Mughal Empire. But Aurangzeb still had one more problem. 
he still had the Marathas. He got rid of the, the Deccan Sultanates, or I would say more or less absorbed the Deccan Sultanates. That's a better word because he didn't wipe them out. He absorbed the Deccan Sultanates, but the Marathas are still an issue. And we mentioned earlier that the new Maratha commander, the new Maratha ruler, was Sambhaji, who was the son of Shivaji. We discussed earlier in the previous episodes how effective, how clever, how really successful Shivaji had been, how effective he was as a ruler. Well, Sambhaji was none of that. He was nothing like his father. He was not as good of a military commander. He was not very popular with his people. And he was not able to prevent the fledgling, this new Maratha kingdom, from descending into various internal disputes. So with Sambhaji leading the Marathas instead of Shivaji, the Mughals defeated them easily. And they defeated them with Sambhaji's carelessness. In February 1689, Sambhaji was captured while he was attending a party in the town of Samgameshwar, which is in southeastern Maharashtra. The Mughals captured him. They took him to prison, dressed him in jester clothes with bells and, and a cape, and then paraded him around on a camel. And then they hacked him to pieces and fed him to stray dogs. Yeah, the Mughals could be rough. I told you this earlier. <laughs> the Mughals could be rough. Sambhaji's son, Shivaji II, was named the new Maratha king. However, the, this new king was only seven years old, so his uncle, a man named Raja Ram, was acting as his regent. But the Mughals soon invaded the Maratha capital of Raigar and captured the boy king. However, his uncle, Raja Ram, who was also the regent, he managed to escape and declared himself the new Maratha king. So now with this, Aurangzeb believes his job in the Deccan was complete. He believed that he had finally achieved dominance in the Deccan. He had defeated and conquered the two remaining Deccan sultanates. His rebellious son had to flee uh, the Deccan and run off to Persia. He had killed one of the Maratha kings, that is Sambhaji, and captured the other, that is Shivaji II. And he had also captured the Maratha capital. So from Aurangzeb's perspective, he had completed the conquest of the Deccan. But as we will soon see, inshallah, in future episodes, this was just an illusion. This was just another Deccan quagmire that the Mughals would sink into and just not be able to extract themselves from. Emperor Aurangzeb would spend the rest of his life in continuous warfare in the Deccan, and he would never return back to the north. He would continuously have to fight and put down resistance in the Deccan, and it just... It gets crazy, but that's for another episode. Right now, let's go ahead and talk about the East India Company. The EIC tries to fight the Mughals. There are some problems with the EIC in Bengal. Initially, Emperor Aurangzeb had a fairly good relationship with the EIC, the East India Company. He had rewarded them for defending Surat against a Maratha attack by reducing their import duties on EIC goods. However, in 1681, a man named Josiah Child became the new director of the EIC, and this man was a little foolish. He was, he was very aggressive. He had only recently become very wealthy, and 
Sometimes the newly rich can be can be very uh, assertive, very arrogant, very confident, some may say. And Josiah Child was the same way. Now, even though Aurangzeb had a decent relationship with the EIC, things were not perfect in Bengal, where some of the EIC factories and, and ports and bases were. EIC workers at English factories in Bengal were complaining about abuse from the local Mughal authorities. And some of this was true. Shaista Khan, we mentioned him in previous episodes, that was Aurangzeb's governor of Bengal. Shaista Khan did not like the English. He did not like the EIC. He accused them, he accused them of being low culture, of being quarrelsome, and he punished them or took out his dislike of the EIC by imposing additional duties on top of what Aurangzeb had promised, additional duties on British trade or English trade, I should say, which the EIC refused to pay. Let's read this excerpt discussing the deteriorating relationship between the Mughals and the East India Company. Only once during the 17th century did the company try to use its strength against the Mughals and then with catastrophic consequences. In 1681, the directorship was taken over by the recklessly aggressive Sir Josiah Child, who had started his career supplying beer to the Navy in Portsmouth, and who was described by the diarist John Evelyn as an overgrown and suddenly moneyed man, most sordidly avaricious. In Bengal, the factors had begun complaining, as Strangsham Master wrote to London, that here every petty officer makes a prey of us, abusing us at pleasure to screw what they can out of us. We are, he wrote, despised and trampled upon by Mughal officials. This was indeed the case. The Nawab of Bengal, Shaista Khan, made no secret of his dislike of the company and wrote to his friend and maternal nephew, the Emperor Aurangzeb, that the English were a company of base, quarreling people, and foul dealers. Ignorant of the scale of Mughal power, Child made the foolish decision to react with force and attempt to teach the Mughals a lesson. We have no remedy left, he wrote from the company's court in Leadenhall Street, but either to desert our trade or we must draw the sword his majesty had entrusted us with to vindicate the rights and honor of the English nation in India. William Dalrymple, The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company so we see here that Josiah Child decided to use military force against the Mughals. This guy just didn't really understand how powerful the Mughals were. And I hate to say this, this is a perfect example of European arrogance. He thought, or perhaps he thought, I'm going to put it into his mind, perhaps he thought that it was impossible for an Indian empire to beat a European one. And so in 1686, King James II sent a fleet of 19 ships from London to Bengal. These ships included 200 cannons and 600 soldiers, and their purpose, their intention, was to capture the port of Chittagong in Bangladesh and to support the British position. This has to be the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. This empire, the Mughal Empire, regularly handed out 5,000 soldier ranks to even low-level officers. I mean, low-level officers for the simplest things were just handed 5,000 ranks of soldiers. Just given 5,000 soldiers. Here you go, 5,000 soldiers. 
and the English thought they were going to beat them with 600? This is this has to be one of the most crazy military... These guys just really didn't understand just who the Mughals were. This turned out to be such a disastrous and foolish endeavor. I mean, Aurangzeb, he had just wrapped up his conquest in the Deccan, first of all. So for the time being, Bijapur, Golconde, and the Marathas had all been subdued. So he has this experienced battle-hardened army that was very large, and now they were free and had nothing to do. And all they had to do now was deal with these English in Bengal. Needless to say, the Mughals wiped the floor with the English. <laughs> they just I won't say they wiped them out because some of them were taken prison, but they wiped the floor with the English landing force. I mean, the Mughals went on, they shut down all of the EIC dealings in their territory. They blockaded Mumbai. They confiscated a bunch of EIC factories, including those in Surat, Masuli, Patnam, and Hooghly. They expelled the English from Bengal. They prohibited any further trade with the British. They paraded the captured EIC workers through the streets of Surat in chains and manacles. The EIC had to come back and beg the Mughals for peace. They begged them for peace, all humbled, and Aurangzeb accepted their apologies. I'm so upset about this. Aurangzeb accepted their apologies. He accepted their promise to submit to Mughal authority. And just like he did with the Marathas, he gave them another chance. He gave them another chance. <sighs> Aurangzeb relented, and in 1690, he forgave them. They had to pay a measly indemnity, a measly fine of 150,000 rupees. This decision by Aurangzeb would cost his successors control over India. I know, we're talking about this 300 years later, and it's easy to play armchair quarterback today. But really, Aurangzeb should have shut them down and kept them shut down completely. Or, I mean, this, I don't know, he could have taken away the English, he did take away the English property, he could have given those same... Uh, trading rights or those factories to the Portuguese or the Dutch or somebody else or took them over himself for all he could and let them let them uh, the Mughals do it. Or he could have let the English back in and gave them such severe restrictions they could never get but so high in power and authority ever again. But he didn't. He did not. He let them back in and things would definitely change over the next hundred years. That same year that Aurangzeb forgave the English in 1690, the EIC administrator, a man named Job Charnak, established a new factory just south of Hughley in a small fishing village called Kalikata or Kaligat. Kalikata means Dak of the Goddess Kali. Well, this village would grow into the mega city known as Calcutta, currently located in West Bengal in India, though its modern name is Kolkata. Calcutta would serve as the capital of British India from 1772 to 1911. So that's going to wrap it up for today. Inshallah, in the next episode, we will continue to discuss Aurangzeb's 20-plus year quagmire in the Deccan, along with his very sad demise and the beginning of the decline of the Mughal Empire. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, 
Become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet-Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Afghanistan Season 1, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. This season, we are discussing the Soviet-Afghan War, and this is Episode 1-10, the final episode of this series. The passage we just read was written in 1990 by Muhammad Yusuf in his book, Afghanistan the Bear Trap. If some of it doesn't quite make sense just yet, inshallah, this final episode should help to clear things up. Let's begin by going to the Soviet Union and looking at the politics going on there. Mikhail Gorbachev declared that Soviet troops would begin withdrawing from Afghanistan by May 15, 1988. On April 14, 1988, he signed a peace agreement in Geneva, Switzerland that was also signed by the government of Afghanistan, the United States, and Pakistan. Gorbachev went on to promise that half of all Soviet troops would be out of Afghanistan by August 1988 and the remainder would be gone by February 1989. This agreement, this peace deal, also confirmed that the Soviet Union would continue to financially support Mohammad Najibullah's government, that is, the official communist government of Afghanistan. However, the United States and Pakistan also agreed to stop supporting the Mujahideen. This final point, the U.S. and Pakistan's uh, agreement to stop supporting the Mujahideen, this was put in there really to bolster the Soviet Union's reputation. In reality, however, the United States and Pakistan would continue to support the Mujahideen. Mikhail Gorbachev, for his part, he hoped Mohammad Najibullah would be able to make some sort of deal with the Mujahideen. However, Pakistan was intent on using the Mujahideen to overthrow Najibullah's government. And with the change in the Soviet Union, came a change with how the United States and Pakistan dealt with the Mujahideen. As we mentioned in the previous episode, General Akhtar had been removed as the head of the ISI. He had been the primary architect of the jihad that had so far successfully been able to 
push the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan. The new ISI chief, a man named Major General Hamid Gul, he was going to have a very difficult time over the next two years. During this period, the next two years after the Soviet withdrawal, this period would set the stage for the civil war between the various Mujahideen groups. One thing you have to understand, however, is that General Hamid Gul and Ziaul Haq, they were concerned that some of the Mujahideen leaders were getting too strong. Now, we mentioned back in episode six the role of the Mujahideen leaders, their political leadership in Peshawar, Pakistan. We discussed how the political leaders, the Mujahideen political leaders, acted as intermediaries between the ISI and the Mujahideen commanders. The political leaders would take the money and weapons from the ISI, and then they would pass them on to their commanders to use in the field. Well, General Hamid Gul and President Ziaul Haq, they wanted to neutralize and weaken the Mujahideen political leaders. So they began going over their heads and sending the weapons directly to the Mujahideen commanders. The United States preferred this method and had no objections, and you will see why hopefully by the end of this episode, inshallah. This stripped the power from the leadership, the Mujahideen leadership in Peshawar, and helped to turn them against Pakistan. Remember, the leadership in Peshawar was already upset with Pakistan for keeping them out of the negotiation process with the Soviet Union. So while this may have weakened the Mujahideen political leaders, it also served to strengthen the Mujahideen commanders. The problem was, however, that the Mujahideen commanders now began to fight each other. Not all the commanders received equal weapons. It was very difficult to divide weapons equally between hundreds of commanders. It's fairly easy to divide $100 million between seven Mujahideen groups and let the Mujahideen commanders deal with the distribution between the different commanders. But now you have hundreds of commanders. It is impossible, impossible to equally divide $100 million worth of weapons between hundreds upon hundreds of Mujahideen commanders. This is why General Akhtar and the ISI preferred to give the weapons to the leaders from the very beginning. That's why they preferred that setup that we mentioned in previous episodes. And so with some Mujahideen commanders receiving better or more weapons than other Mujahideen commanders, this created jealousy and deepened the already present rivalries between the various groups. 